the ushers wouldn't mind letting folks sit out in the lobby know that we are beginning. And is there anything I need to do about that? You got it? All right, thanks. So this morning we are continuing our series in what book? Acts. Acts. Very good. Does anybody remember what our title or theme for the book of Acts is this morning? Unhindered, right, thank you. So we've titled our series on Acts Unhindered, and it is a, a look at the advancement of God's unstoppable mission in and through the early church by the power of His Spirit. So far, it's been fairly smooth sailing. I mean, um, maybe other than the, the one giant obstacle presented in chapter 1, where you have God in the form of Jesus Christ departing from the scene as their resurrected leader and Him being ascended into heaven. Other than that, it's been pretty smooth sailing. But today, a slight spoiler alert, there's going to be some obstacles that are presented to the early church. Peter and John are going to be arrested and appear before the Sanhedrin, the same council that Jesus was tried by and then shipped off to Pontius Pilate for his crucifixion. So the disciples, those who are left to carry on Christ's mission, are now finding themselves before the same group of men that sentenced him to die and saw him crucified. We're going to be uh, in chapter 4, the first 22 verses this morning. You can begin by turning there. And three times in this passage, Luke inserts a summary or a comment into the action or arguments of the narrative to reassure his readers, to reassure Theophilus that God's mission continues unhindered. Three times where Luke makes it clear that even though the fledgling church is facing outside opposition, really for the first time, God's plan and the advancement of his message is not hindered by the events that are taking place, the events that are unfolding. And so through this we really see our theme for all of Acts serving uh, as a theme for this section that we're going to be looking at today, God's mission advances unhindered. We're going to each use each of Luke's reminders, those three sections that I mentioned um, this morning, to be our markers or dividers for this passage. And we'll see from the surrounding verses what obstacles needed to be overcome. The three verses that have these summaries uh, are verse 14, verse, or verse 4, verse 14, and verse 21. So our outline will look like this. God's mission advances unhindered. Number one, unhindered by the disciples' arrest. That'll be the first four verses. 5 through 14 is unhindered by the disciples' lack of credentials and status. Number three is unhindered by the rulers' opposition and unbelief. It's verses 15 through 21. And then finally, we'll use 21 to kind of highlight a theme that runs throughout the chapter, unhindered by the natural order of things. Before we begin, would you pray with me that God would move among us? Lord, we are grateful for this opportunity to be together. We recognize that this time is a gift from you. It's a gift that not all throughout history or around the world have been able to enjoy in freedom. And we are grateful that you have provided such an opportunity for us. Lord, would we not take this for granted, but would we benefit and receive from what you have as we gather today? We recognize that, that our gathering is only as significant as 
it is a gathering with you. So we ask that you would move among us, that you would, that you would convict, that you would reveal and illumine, that you would use our time in your word this morning to show us more of you, to increase our faith. In your great name we pray. Amen. Well, last week, Matt led us through chapter 3, which uh, was a section where Peter and John were going to the temple, and at the temple gate, there was a, a man lame from birth who asked them for alms. And instead of giving, them, giving him silver or gold, he called upon the name of Jesus to heal this man. And then he was dancing and rejoicing. And a crowd began to gather as they explained that this work was done not by their hands, but by the triumphant, exalted, resurrected Christ. That's where our uh, passage begins today. And, and I'm just going to be taking this as it comes, um, a couple verse chunks at a time, so then we can talk about it and see uh, what God has for us in each one. Beginning with uh, our first heading, that God's mission was unhindered by the disciples' arrest. So verses 1 through 3. And as they were speaking to the people, still speaking to those who had gathered as they were proclaiming Christ risen and the power to raise this man in his infirmity. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Now Peter and John have healed a man lame from birth. Now they are preaching to the crowds that are gathering in amazement. Most days, this man's friends would have carried him to the temple gates. He wasn't allowed to go inside, but this was one of the most frequently visited places in all of Jerusalem. And so this was a prime location for someone that was going to ask for alms, ask for those that were about to go in and do their religious duties to have a mercy and a compassion. And so he had some prime real estate. He was regularly there, and he was readily recognizable because of his place here year after year, day after day. Every visitor of the temple would pass him on the way in and then again on the way out. So when he gets healed, there's no question of a plant in the audience or some behind-the-scenes shenanigans. Everyone knows this man. They've just never seen him at eye level, standing on his own two feet. Clearly, a miracle has taken place, and a large crowd is gathered to hear what has happened. Now, 2,000 years ago, you didn't have a Bon Secours or GHS hospital systems, no urgent care or 24-hour pharmacies, no antibiotics or even aspirin. If you had a contagious disease like leprosy, you were quickly quarantined and, in effect, exiled. If you were blind or lame, there was no fix. You are simply consigned to the side of the road begging for the kindness and pity of strangers. Is it any wonder that news of Jesus as a healer spread like wildfire wherever he went? I mean, this news spread throughout Judea during his ministry so that as he traveled the sick and the lame the blind the possessed were brought to him and he would heal them for those without really in that time 
any hope of an improved quality of life for the rest of their lives. Boy, the name of Jesus brought a beam of light, of hope into their darkness. I mean, imagine you have a sick loved one. Some of us, we don't have to imagine that hard. You hear Jesus is in Jerusalem. Maybe, maybe our little town will be his next stop. There's an anticipation, a hope for what this man can do that no one else can do. Word of his power, his gift spread wherever he went. For some of those same reasons, I bet the word of his death spread just as quickly. A hope that was there, that ray of light for many who had no other hope was extinguished on the day that they heard of his crucifixion. That this healer, this teacher, was now dead. The news did spread quickly. In fact, the disciples on the road to Emmaus were in disbelief that anyone anywhere around Jerusalem only three days later would not have heard the news of what had happened to their Lord. So when a lame man known to all is healed and credit is given to this same Jesus that was crucified yet now proclaimed risen, it got people's attention. Luke writes that the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them the priests, of course, are, are the Levites, those from the tribe of Levi who are currently taking their rotation in the temple duties, in the temple responsibilities. The captain of the temple um, is one of the high officers of the temple. Actually, he's second in command, second only to the high priest. Um, and he essentially was tasked with maintaining order. He, he was in charge of essentially the police force of the temple. The Sadducees, well at this time, they were the ruling elite of the temple. And we are going to see as we go through the book of Acts the, the role of primary religious opposition transition from the Pharisees in the Gospels to the Sadducees in the book of Acts. This is the first encounter in what will become a pattern of persecution for the church at their hands. Some of the characteristics of the Sadducees is that they could be described more along the lines of political opportunities, where the Pharisees were hardcore and letter to the law and above and beyond so that there wouldn't be any danger of them falling into sin. The Sadducees more made use of religion as much as it was convenient for their purposes and advancement. What did they need to do to keep things right with Rome? We could see that even in the crucifixion of Jesus. The, the political elements and aspects that are being played. That it's better for one man to die for the good of the nation. He didn't mean that in terms of salvation. He meant it's better to get Rome off our back if we do this to this guy. They held to the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, but that was it. They were essentially materialists. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, in angels and demons, or an afterlife. Which goes a long way to explain why Luke reports that they were annoyed at Peter and John proclaiming in Jesus 
the resurrection of the dead. It was already evening and there was no time for a hearing right then, so they were arrested and they were held till morning. And this is where our first reassurance comes from the author Luke. He writes in verse 4, But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. Luke isn't willing at this point in the narrative as, as the disciples are facing their first opposition to leave his readers hanging. They don't even have to wait until the end of the account to hear that God is still active and advancing his mission. As soon as he mentions the first threat to the disciples, the first tension in the narrative, he is quick to add on the effectiveness of the gospel message. It is unhindered by Peter and John's arrest. 5,000 men are now part of this community of believers. And with the language that's used here, it could mean 5,000 total believers, using men just as a general term, or it could mean 5,000 heads of household because, frankly, counting everyone was just getting too unwieldy already by this point. But by any measure, a megachurch has been birthed even as the most prominent leaders are sitting in jail. Because God's work and activity isn't limited to or dependent upon any leader, any one person. Even if they are Peter and John. They may have been confined to a cell that night, but God's Spirit was not. God's Spirit was unhindered by the disciples' arrest. Our second point, is we're going to go to verse 5 now, is that God's mission was unhindered by the disciples' lack of credentials and status. And this is the point where from verse 5 to 14, where we'll spend the bulk of our time this morning. Verse 5, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power? Or by what name did you do this? Just to introduce you to who these players are, Annas is the previous high priest. He was actually removed by the Romans. And Caiaphas, his son-in-law, is the current high priest. John and Alexander were either members of their family or high-ranking members of this council that we really have no record of, but would have been obviously readily recognized names at this time. And so the whole council, the Sanhedrin, is gathered. And they begin by asking whose name Peter and John healed in. Perhaps because not everyone was present or heard the full report from the day before. And perhaps to see if a night under arrest would change their story at all. The phrasing of their question is consistent with other biblical language that equates the naming of something, the name something was done in, with the power or authority it was done in. In other words, if a messenger comes in Caesar's name, he comes under Caesar's authority and with his directive. So by what name did you do this is the question. By what authority, by what right do you have to be doing this? Because... As much as they could tell, they hadn't sent them. Then Peter, verse 8, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, 
Let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter essentially starts off with, well, since you're asking... If you really want to know, and and I don't think he's trying to be a smart aleck here, I I, I think he's really trying to reach their souls. See, Peter has seen the resurrected Christ and been commissioned by him. On the day of Pentecost, he experienced the infilling of the Holy Spirit. He spoke in tongues which he had never been taught, and he preached a sermon that rescued 3,000 souls. Yesterday, this same resurrected Jesus used him to heal a man lame from birth. Peter's seen a lot in the last couple of weeks. A year or two ago, Peter sank when he focused on the waves instead of on Jesus. As he is before this council, his focus is not on the waves. He is not intimidated by these men and what they can do to him. I mean, let's face it, he was aware if these men killed Jesus, they certainly could kill him as well. But his focus is on Jesus. And what he has seen his resurrected Lord do. And I think he fully believed in that moment that anything was possible. He hadn't scripted the last several weeks of his life. He stood amazed at every turn at the power of God on display. So maybe these men will finally see Jesus for who he is when I open my mouth. Maybe God will do another miracle here in their midst. But no matter what may happen and what threat he may be under from these men, he knew that without a doubt, Jesus, whom these men had crucified, God raised from the dead. And this same resurrected Jesus healed this lame man standing right next to him. And no matter how unpopular that message was going to be with this particular crowd, Peter knew that was the message he needed to proclaim and that was the message that they needed to hear. For as he said it, there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Peter is no more antagonistic with this group than he has been in each of his other sermons so far. In each one, he has made the point that his audience was responsible for Jesus' crucifixion. Here, he is able to personalize it a little bit further by pointing out that they specifically were the builders from Psalm 118 who had rejected the stone that had now become the cornerstone But just as in each of his previous sermons, this hard news is brought for the purpose of bringing his hearers to repentance. The very next sentence has Peter proclaiming the salvation available in the same Jesus that they rejected. Even for these men who plotted and killed Christ, the message and the offer of salvation in him is extended.
in case any of us would wonder if our sins are too great to be a candidate for redemption. We can look at a place like this. And we can know that the same offer of salvation is extended to each of us today. If you have never placed your trust in Christ, please know that you are not too far off for Him to rescue you. But be aware, there is salvation in no one else. This claim did not originate with Peter. Jesus himself declared that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man may come to the Father except through him. He did not come simply to be a provoking teacher or a revolutionary or even a martyr. As C.S. Lewis spelled out so wonderfully, you can consider him a liar or a lunatic for such a claim, but you can't just dismiss him and his claims as harmless or well-meaning. His claims of exclusivity don't allow that option. Either he is who he said he is, or he isn't. If he's not and he knew it, then he was the epitome of cruelty to purposely lead people astray and put their trust in him alone. If he was unknowingly wrong, then he was crazy. A fool who told others he was the only way to God. But the record shows him to be exceptionally clear-minded and far from crazy or cruel. Not only was his life a testimony to his exclusive claims, but his resurrection from the dead backed up everything he said about himself. Jesus and his exclusive claims must be reckoned with. Peter and John know this and they press this point home to the council. They aren't just do-gooders with some really neat tricks. They are witnesses to the reality of the divine proclamations made by Jesus of Nazareth. The religious leaders sought to dismiss and shut him down by having him killed, but he didn't stay dead. And now before them stand witnesses to his resurrection who are proclaiming his power to heal and bring life with a man born lame standing right beside them. And exhibit A gives ample credibility to their arguments. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Verse 13. Now then, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. This is the second reassurance that that divides and marks this passage for us. They had nothing to say in opposition. What a remarkable statement. A room filled with the best and brightest religious minds of the day had nothing to say in opposition. A room filled with many individuals who theologically disagreed with the very idea of what was being proclaimed to them had nothing to say in opposition. Because a lame man that they walked by every day as they passed in and out of the temple was standing next to Peter and John. I think standing is a key word there. 
I, I almost think though it's probably more of a positional statement because I can't imagine him actually standing still. I'm sure there's a grin from ear to ear and he's just kind of moving. How can he contain himself after a life of not being able to use his legs at all? With him standing there, they can't argue with the fact of his healing. But many of them were theologically opposed to the resurrection of the dead, which is what Peter and John were proclaiming as the power for this healing. And in this moment, they weren't able to offer a word of opposition to that either. Luke lets us know that they were astonished at what they had just heard. Peter and John filled with the Holy Spirit, they were bold. They were also astonished because they were uneducated. They hadn't come through their schools of training and theology. They were common men. They didn't have a pedigree. Everyone else in this room had gotten there by their achievements or their connections, and these men had neither. They spoke like fishermen because that is what they were. They weren't polished or eloquent. They were probably fairly rough. But God's message and Christ's mission were not hindered by their lack of credentials or status. Instead, it seems that their lack made it easier for Jesus to be seen. The room was astonished. They had nothing to say in opposition, but they could tell that they had been with Jesus. Fishermen, tax collectors, the salt of the earth, ordinary men employed with everyday occupations. Jesus didn't go to the palace or the academy in search of his first witnesses. The power of God and the light from God shines forth brightly from earthen, everyday vessels. I don't know about you, but this, this brings me enormous comfort. As someone who considers himself just a guy, no extraordinary talents or training. It comforts me to see who he chooses, who he uses. I think sometimes we need to get over ourselves when it, when it comes to our thinking of what God can and can't use us for. A couple of fishermen silenced an antagonistic room filled with the elite of society. Because they had been with Jesus. Jesus was able to be seen more clearly because Peter and John weren't the focus. Instead, it was evident that the disciples had been with him. So who can people tell that we've been with? Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He didn't choose you and he didn't choose me because we were such gems. He chose us knowing what he got. Some of us like to think maybe he didn't really see. Maybe he didn't really know. Oh, he knew. But he knew in our commonness, 
in our frailty and weakness, he could be allowed to shine all the brighter. Because there's no confusion who's at work here. There's no confusion who gets the glory with us. We're not capable. But he is. And he's allowed to be seen in us. It's not about us. The point is not that we should neglect training or education or, or any of these things, but instead the point is the transforming power of being with Jesus. It's not about us. Our job is simply to be witnesses to what we have seen and heard. So are you waiting for some level of achievement before you believe God will be able to use you? Teens and young adults, you have an amazing opportunity to impact our world for Christ. You want to know why? One of the reasons is because our culture doesn't really expect much from you. You can live up to everyone's low expectations and no one will think anything of it. But if you have been with Jesus and proclaim what you know, of him to those around you, people will take notice. For the mom staying home with two little kids, your circle may be small as you don't even have the opportunity to get out on most days, but your impacts can be great as those you do come in contact with see Jesus in you. Are you in a rank or position or job or social status where you feel passed over, devalued, or worst of all, ordinary? In a world that overvalues celebrity and equates going viral with success? If so, you're in good company. It was ordinary, common individuals that Christ used and still uses to turn the world upside down. Jesus' mission is unhindered by a lack of credentials and status. Our third point, his mission is also unhindered by the ruler's opposition and unbelief. Verse 15, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, in other words, they wanted to talk amongst themselves, They conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them. And charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Here we really see the tragedy of unbelief. Dancing before them is a testimony to the power of the risen Christ. A healing so amazing that they themselves declare it a notable sign evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and that they cannot deny it. However, when the men God used to manifest this sign are proclaiming the true source of this miracle, they will not allow themselves believe we can see from this that belief and unbelief are not a matter of intellect Peter and John were uneducated common men while the scribes and council were among the greatest minds of the land but that doesn't mean we're to equate faith with dumb Paul was educated in the best schools and was a Pharisee of Pharisees and was used mightily of God, not to mention examples like Moses or Solomon. They had great intellects and great faith to go with it. Intellect is not 
the issue. We also see the rejection of the gospel as not a modern or postmodern phenomenon. It was an ancient tragedy as much as it is a current one. Someone can have every opportunity, even observing a miracle before their eyes and still reject Christ. Friends, unbelief is a snare. Reason and argument are not our primary weapons against it. Pray for those that are caught in it. And recognize that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Pray that God would give them ears to hear and hearts to believe. Verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So they've just told them, Never mention the name of Jesus again. Do not go teaching in that name. Their response, well, it's a fairly polite way of saying, no, not going to do that. You did just hear us say that the Jesus you killed, God raised him from the dead, right? You heard that part? And now you're asking us, after he has just shown his power by healing this man right here, to listen to you rather than to him. You guys clearly don't get this. A resurrected Jesus changes everything. We were there and we wept bitter tears when you killed him. And then we race three days later to see the tomb empty. He ate with us and taught us and opened our eyes again and again over the next month and a half. He sent His Spirit to empower us, enabling us to see this man healed yesterday and to speak to you today. Judge for yourselves who we should listen to because we can't help but speak of what we have seen and heard. Frankly, you don't really scare us anymore. The fear of death, the only thing ultimately they could hold over them, lost its sting when they encountered the resurrected Jesus. Verse 21, and when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. This is the th third reassurance that frames our passage and proclaims God's advancing mission. They let them go, finding no way to punish them. Let's be clear, the council did not believe they were opposed to their message to the point of threatening them not to teach it anymore. But they couldn't do a thing about it. They gave them some threats that the disciples already told them they were going to ignore and they let them go. God's mission was unhindered by the opposition of the religious leaders. His message was not silenced by their threats. They could no more stop the advance of the gospel than a sandcastle can stop a tidal wave. Why? Because they were fighting against a sovereign and omnipotent foe. Which brings us to our last point. God's mission is unhindered by the natural order of we read all were praising God for what had happened. Verse 22, for the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old.
people throughout the city, including those gathered in this council, saw this man not only day after day, but year after year. He had been lame for over 40 years. And now he was jumping for joy and dancing and praising God. The advance of the gospel mission and message are not hindered by the natural order because the mission and the message are supernatural. See, the supernatural in this story was not limited to the healing of the lame man. The Holy Spirit was just as active in Peter and John when they were testifying to the rulers as when they healed the lame man. Not only in their boldness and ability to proclaim, but in the message itself. The power of the Christian message, the gospel, is that it is supernatural. It is the power of God unto salvation. It is not of this world. It can't just be explained or formulated. It is not something we create or manufacture, but what God has done for us. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way, Christianity is supernatural. When we become Christians, it is not because we have done something, but because something has been done to us. Something changes us. Here is the phenomenon. Unlearned and ignorant men could speak as they spoke, could heal the lame man, were filled with power. What had happened to them? Here's what happened. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Christianity is supernatural. The Christian witness is to be a testimony of God at work. Think of the change in Peter. The last time he was recognized as being with Jesus at a gathering of this council, he denied three times that he even knew the Lord to a slave girl. This time, he boldly proclaimed way above his education and status. Christianity is not a system for self-improvement. Christ transforms. Jesus did not come to teach us how to save ourselves. He came to save the lost. He came to heal the sick. Peter and John did not say, you've got the power within you to get up. He said, no, by the name of Jesus, stand. Likewise, they didn't say that Jesus taught some helpful things about salvation. Instead, they said, Jesus alone saves. He is the Savior. Not an instructor or example, but the only access to the Father. We are not employed as substitute saviors, but as witnesses to what He has done and what He will do. The apostles were appealing to this council and to the nation of Israel to consider the continuing, mighty, validating acts of Jesus. And to peek ahead a couple chapters, some did hear. Some did listen. By the time we reach Acts chapter 6, verse 7, a great number of the priests have become obedient to the faith. These religious leaders needed the same thing that the 5,000 already added to the church needed. The illumination and power of Christ's redeeming work. And praise be to God, He opened the eyes of many to see Jesus as the Savior He truly is. Paul wasn't the only religious leader that was part of God's unstoppable advance of His supernatural gospel. Because the Christian message and mission are by nature supernatural, 
Even seemingly hopeless cases are never beyond the reach or transforming power of our great Redeemer. Neither the addict ensnared in their debauchery nor the religiously obedient, blinded by their own perceived goodness is without the need of being saved or beyond God's ability to save. Because it is never dependent on our ability to save ourselves. But on God's supernatural power. His mission advances unhindered. Don't you want to be a part of that? As we were encouraged through the Word this morning during worship, thirst is a good thing because He alone satisfies. The band could go ahead and come up. Thirst for Him. Thirst for His Spirit. Thirst for His salvation. Thirst for His healing. Thirst to be used by Him because His mission advances unhindered. There is hope. For all. Let us pray together. Father, thank you that it's not up to us, not up to our ability, but that you are the Savior. And there is no stopping your advancing mission. Oh, Lord, give us faith to proclaim this message. Give us faith to believe this message. Give us faith to live this mission. For the good of those around us and for your glory, we pray this. Amen. Let's stand.